The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sun Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive. We're in that beautiful town bank building, and we're also in the village of Whitefish Bay, and there we're in the Equitable Bank building, which is directly across from Winkies and actually also Kitty Corner from Sendex, so easy to find us. And, of course, we're also able to serve our clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. So visit ellenbecker.com for more details. My guest today is David Bowl, and David and I have been friends for a very, very long time. And uh, I had the pleasure of a couple years ago speaking with David, and he shared a book that he was writing, Parallel Universes, Universes, The Story of Rebirth. And I was so touched by the book, and I know that um, David has worked very hard, both um, personally and professionally, to bring this book to the media. And it's uh, it's just a wonderful story about rebirth. And David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for having me. You know, David, I normally when I do the introductions to a book, I go into detail as to what the book is about. But this is such a, a very special book. It's such a personal book that I don't think that I could even begin to give it justice. There's so there's so much of you in this book. So the best person that can describe this book is you. Mm, well, thank you. Well, ultimately, it is a memoir, so it is a story about my life, but it's not a random walk through life. It's actually the product of many, many years, as you noted earlier, of investigation and work that I've had to do. Um, there was a time in my life where I realized that life wasn't working for me so well, and one of the, the, the things that got me to change was the fact that I realized that I was using alcohol as a coping mechanism for most everything in my life. It was a really deep, dark time in my life, and I, I knew I had to reach deeply and do some personal investigation. And thankfully, with a lot of support, I was able to stop that habit and move into a different phase of my life. But I also realized that there are other things that weren't quite right. So I had to do a deep dive and figure out who am I? Well, what What is it about myself that, that contributes to my worldview today and my relationships? And this book is ultimately a product of that. It's a product of describing the lessons that I learned as a result of all these experiences I've had in my life. Um, ultimately, another way to look at it is it's a book about parallel universes. And by that, I mean it's a way of assimilating two very distinct lifetimes or lives into one cohesive narrative. See, I, I was adopted at age seven, and I was raised by a wonderful family in a supportive environment in the, the Milwaukee area here. And I, I very much um, had every advantage in life. And, and I went to school. I went to college. I succeeded in life. I got married. I raised a family. And on the outside, it was a great narrative to look at, other than the fact that I was tripped up midlife by some problems with alcohol. But you see, there's also this other life that I had to assimilate into my being in order to fully under my, understand myself, and that's because I was adopted at age seven, which meant I was relinquished by a genetic set of parents that I had no information about. As a matter of fact, I didn't have any true information about them until maybe four or five years ago. And I had to take all of that information and, and assimilate that into my worldview and, and the experiences that I've had today. And this book is ultimately a product of that and a... a Ultimately, again, a, um, 
I guess what I would call it is, is, is a message of hope to any reader that they can overcome obstacles in life. They can do a deep dive on themselves. They can do that hard work that sometimes we struggle to do, and they can come out on the back end in a, in a marvelous way. I think also, David, in a way, by being so transparent, and, you know, we've got our new billboard up there that says transparency equals trust. <laughs> and I think transparency is a really big word, and it's a really important word in building trust. And by putting your life out here and being able to share it and being so transparent, you've really given permission to people to look at their own lives and to accept those things that maybe they can't even identify. Like you were saying, that feeling, something just isn't right, but I can't quite get my hands around it. I can't quite figure out what it is. And you went back and looked at alcohol. You went back and and looked at, well, maybe it's part adoption and maybe it's just who I am as a person. I mean, you really dug deep, as you said, to try and put these piece, pieces to the puzzle together and the way and, and I love you so dearly. And when I when we talk and we have these most wonderful, wonderful conversations, I really see that you've sort of built a tapestry of your life. Mm-hmm. You have re you've taken all these different fragments and you've brought them together and you've built this beautiful tapestry that you can put around you when you're chilly and use it for comfort. What a wonderful way to look at that tapestry. You know, from my background, and I, I, I'm a, a clinician, so I've worked in the addiction and mental health fields for some time. I describe it as a cohesive narrative, but I think that term tapestry is, is so much more wonderful and more encompassing because it not only incorporates the activity of having done that work, but it brings the emotion into it. And that is so key. You remark that when people read this book, they are going to relate to the story and the emotion surrounding it, and that's exactly the feedback that I've gotten. I have heard from... I don't know how many people, countless, probably 100 or more people who have read the book and been deeply influenced by it. And if I can paraphrase their response, it has been, David, you have put into a, a language emotions and experiences that I could never quantify before. And once I was able to identify them, then I was able to do something about them. But before that, they had sway over me. They had power over me in some way, and I, I didn't know what to do. I, I knew that there was maybe a, a low-grade um, sad feeling going on or I, I, or maybe some anxiety associated with it or some stress. But until I read that language and was able to equate that to some emotions that I felt, there's nothing I could do about it. Now I have the power to do that. Now you've given me the language to do that. And I, I thank you for your observation. It, the testimony from people who have read this book have stated that it has been empowering for them to do that work. And let's not kid ourselves. This is some tough work. I mean, <laughs> who really wants to look at themselves? I mean, right. the harder one looks at oneself, we're human beings. The more flaws we're going to find. So it's really difficult, and it's essentially more difficult for someone who had no sense of self to begin with. If someone was raised in, in, in an adopted life, for example, but didn't have any information about their genetic family, the assumption is that something must have been wrong with me. Something was wrong with me because I was relinquished. How do I deal with that today, and why do I really want to look at myself that deeply if I know that I'm going to find something wrong with myself? But ultimately... That's the empowerment. It's like opening up Pandora's box. Exactly. And, well, and you said that transparency, right? It's the secrets that keep us sick, right? Yes. What's in Pandora's box when we don't know what it is holds so much power over us. But once we open that, that box, and there, even though there may be some nasty, tough things to deal with in that box, 
we now know we, we no longer have to fear yeah. anything. We know what to expect and we know how to work through it. And if we don't, we've got lots of loved ones in our lives to ask to do that with. You know, you talk about loved ones. And last night I was on the phone with my granddaughter, Taylor, and we were just having a really wonderful conversation. Some things that, that she was struggling with with a friend of hers. And so right before I walked in the studio this morning, she sent me this little ca- cartoon and it says, just because you're right does not mean I'm wrong. You just haven't seen my life from my side. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> and 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 that's really what this book is about when you said that you know my life this is my life so many people they you know they they look at something like this and it's like how can you talk about that and and this should be so private and I, and and people don't want to talk about these types of issues they do mm-hmm. want to hide them and and I'll have people, you know, say things and I'm thinking, but you just, you haven't seen it from my side. And what you're doing is you're putting it out from your side. You're making mm-hmm. it so visible mm-hmm. and so public. So people can actually see two sides to the story. And it's interesting because describe what your book cover looks like. <laughs> the book cover is a picture of me at about ooh, somewhere between eight and 10 years old. And it shows on the left side, uh, it's a frontal photograph of just my face. And on the left side, it's it's a black and white photograph. And on the right side, it's a color photograph. And that, to me, is, is a, an excellent illustration of those parallel universes yes. that we were talking about. Um, just to comment, Taylor is brilliant because ultimately what you've just said is that we have an opportunity to reexamine our perceptions in life. And that's what not only this book is about, but in my opinion, that's what life is oftentimes needs to be about. And that's why we... Uh, read. That's why we involve ourselves in faith communities. That's why we do this deep work that we need to do. It's sometimes why we have therapy. We need to reexamine our perceptions and to see if those perceptions are still working in the world as we know it today. And that's really important. And to do that, oftentimes, it takes connection. It takes one to trust somebody. So I'm delighted, and although it, it was not an easy thing to do, I'm delighted to put all of myself out there, and I'm asking you and your listeners, please vet my story. See how it holds up to your worldview. See mm-hmm. how it, it fits your perceptions, and if it does, great. Assimilate them, and if it doesn't, challenge that and see what things really mean to you, and I, I hope it provides a catalyst for that. You know, David, um, a little bit about how you mentioned that you got involved with alcohol, and can you explain, um, I have this vision of alcohol being like the story of the frog in the pot, mm-hmm. and the frog gets into the cold pot of water, and it's as happy as can be, and all of a sudden the temperature gets a little bit hotter and a little bit hotter, mm-hmm. and pretty soon before he even can think about jumping out of the pot, he's cooked. Absolutely. <laughs> is, is that kind of how alcohol creeps up on people? It can. It can, and I can, and I can give testimony to that in my own experience. You know, most people, when they're young, report that they started using alcohol or other chemicals is a social lubricant, right? They felt a little self-conscious. They wanted to reach out to more people. They wanted to feel a little bit more involved and more clever. So they used it to lower some inhibitions. And that's typically how people get started at whatever age they do in life. And ultimately, I think that's what happened to me, but it was a little bit different because what ultimately alcohol did is it allowed me to feel more connected to human beings than I had felt connected before. So through no fault of my adopted family, I always struggled to connect with other human beings. But when I first tasted alcohol, and I literally mean that first experience, I felt like I had found the answer to connection that the people I was drinking with and I were connected in a way that no other human beings could be connected. So as I looked at this, I realized, and later in studying through life, that that I missed an opportunity because what eventually happened is you talked about that boil frog that um, that 
creeping in process is that I had found a medication for a problem I didn't even know I had. Mm-hmm. So I started using alcohol for every difficult situation, every raw emotion, every tough uh, obstacle to climb through rather than developing hope, uh, those healthy coping mechanisms to get through it. So eventually, by the time I realized that, oh, my gosh, alcohol has become my solution to every stress or every difficulty I have in life, it had, it, I had become not only physiologically dependent, my body was dependent on it, but psychologically dependent as a scratch. So, yes, you, a very good analysis. You know, David, let's take a quick break. My guest today is David Bowl. He's written a fantastic book, Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth, a memoir. And you can reach you can reach David. You can go to get the book to Amazon or you can go David B. Bowl, B-O-H-L dot com, and you can order the book. David, when we come back, I, I know that some people have tuned in and they're used to me, so they probably aren't asking too big a question as to why has she got him on talking about about this subject. But when we come back, let's talk about the impact that these types of situations, alcoholism, depression, drug addiction, what the impact that it had on you, it has on a, on a family, it has on children, it has on our community, it has our businesses as an employer, as an employee. And then I really hope that everybody stays tuned because we are going to talk about some solutions. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. My guest today is my dear friend, David Bowl. He has written a wonderful book, Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth. It's his memoir. And prior to the taking the break, uh, we said that we would talk about why am I doing this on Money Sense. And it's because I have seen the impact that it has on our community. And I have known David for such a long time. And I know how important this topic and this subject has come become for him and how important and what a catalyst he is for change. And I admire David so much for First of all, coming on the radio show and speaking his truth, which I know that this is a conversation that is very hard. And very often when we're doing estate planning and I'm talking to a client and it'll come up that one person or someone in their family has an addiction and it's painful. It's painful for people to talk about it, to make it public. But one of the most important things, of course, when you're doing estate planning is knowing what you're planning for. <laughs> and so it is a big piece to really be able to talk about. But, you know, David, did you experience that in in terms of yourself and reactions and understanding what happened in your your family, your community? And then once I know how this happened, I'm asking this for you, for the listeners, because I know dearly to my heart how this happened. Um, and then the decision that you made to really want to make a difference in the community because you saw the deterioration. Mm-hmm. Good question. Well, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. This, this is a very difficult subject to talk about. And I would tell you from my personal experience that it probably took me longer than it should have to make changes because of the stigma associated with alcoholism and addiction. And there, there is a stigma that is very prevalent, not just in our community, but, but worldwide with regard to those who suffer from, from the disease of addiction. Um, in my case, it took many years for me to understand that it was not a matter of having a weak will. And that took a lot of friends and a lot of help from the outside. I had to realize that I was very successful in many aspects of life, 
right? Just could not overcome the hurdle of using this this crutch as a coping mechanism going forward. And I think that's a lot of what society sees as well. So at the time, I was very involved in business. I was very involved in the Milwaukee community, and I could never imagine people finding out that I had this problem. And that, to me, is, is exactly what stigma is about, and stigma then feeds shame. So what, what happened is it paralyzed me. It, 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 it prevented me from acting and doing those healthy things that I needed to do. And as, as you suggested, it, it was a drain. It was not just a drain on my physical health and my mental health. It was a drain on relationships, which means that my relationship with my wife and my children suffered. My relationships in business suffered. My ability to contribute to the, the local community in a professional and a personal way all diminished because I was not able to be fully myself. I didn't have the energy and the clarity I needed to move forward. So again, it's that stigma that attaches to it. What I learned is that the more we talk about it, the less the stigma seems to prevent people from seeking help. So so ultimately, you ask the question, why are you talking about this or what have you learned when you come to talk about this? What I've learned is that when I share my story, it empowers other people to share their story. So look at themselves and say, okay, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a mental and physical problem here that I can deal with. This is not a character defect. This is not something that's going to stay with me my whole life. This is something that that, that I can look for help or I can solve with the help of other individuals and then move on and get back to that productive individual. In terms of business in the community, let let me start off by talking about that. It seems that 67% of human resource professionals say that alcohol and other chemicals are the leading problem in their organizations. And as you can imagine, Milwaukee having such a proud working history in the community here, and in particular, a history of being a brewery town, that was that was a, a big issue. As a matter of fact, over the years it has been. So, so this issue, unfortunately, still presents itself today. We, as a, as a society, unfortunately, seem to be finding newer and different ways to alter our realities and to use chemicals to find joy or relief from pain in more and more scientific ways. So, so people have more options than they ever have before to check out or to find immediate gratification, unhealthy type coping mechanisms. Isn't that what they do? But what, what, what that means is that if, if this is a problem in the HR department, this is a problem for individuals and it's a problem for our community because it, it ultimately means that companies are going to incur higher healthcare expenses. They're going to have higher rates of absenteeism. They're going to have obvious reductions in performance and productivity. Um, and of course, there's going to be safety issues for, for the workers and other workers as well. And if you've ever worked closely on a team, and I know that many of your listeners do, and I know that's exactly what you do at Al Umbecker Group, if someone is not able to function and contribute what they are needing to function to contribute to that team, it makes for a mess that others have to adjust to. And ultimately, that's what alcoholism and addiction do. It causes people to alter their their methods of operation in unhealthy ways to make up for that weakness. So that was really a mouthful because the question you asked is really a big one. The good news is that there are people in the community who are ready to help. And again, I am on the radio show and out in public talking about this because I want people to understand that this is not something that can't be overcome. It's something that can be overcome. And once it is overcome, it offers a lifestyle and an ability to be productive and engaged with the human race in, in ways that people never imagined possible before. Additionally, the community cost is is very large. You may have read some articles or seen some news reports on our local news stations about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in our community. And what they're talking about is trauma. And ultimately what we know is that misuse of alcohol and drugs are precursors to traumatizing other individuals. So we, we know in our community and others that we need to stop 
at the base level, traumatizing our children. We can't do that anymore, and we have to put people in the healthy positions without drugs and alcohol to be able to do that. Looking at it another way, it seems that 41% of adolescents and 61% of infants who are placed in out-of-home care, that is, who are fostered, come from homes where drugs and alcohol are a big issue. So we can't we can't turn on the news. We can't pick up an, uh, a, a web page with local news without hearing about the opiate crisis right now. And what that ultimately means is that people who are struggling with overdoses and struggling with those drugs, in addition to other drugs that, that have not gone away, are, are losing their children because they're not able to, to parent their children. And ultimately, that's the answer to your question. What the, what the alcohol and the drugs do is they take away one's ability to have healthy relationships with others, healthy working relationships, healthy parenting relationships, healthy spousal relationships, and significant other relationships, and health, healthy mother-father-child relationships. So removing that and, and is a good start to get the individual healthy, but doing something productive beyond that, giving back, contributing to the community, getting engaged in ways that we as humans get engaged is the secret to, to, to that that phenomenal life that can be offered afterwards. You know, David, one of the things that um, I think is prevalent is people's idea of what alcoholism or what drug addiction is. And I think a lot of people have an idea that people who have have a, a, a issue with alcohol or an alcoholic is you sort of have that picture of someone with a brown bag and a bottle sitting somewhere drinking yeah. or maybe an addict who is shooting up in a street or something like that but the truth of is that's really not who they are that's right and 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 if you hold that thought in your mind it isn't at all parallel literally to what that really looks like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. agreed um this disease of addiction and alcoholism is not a respecter of any socioeconomic class or any race or any ethnicity. It is a what one would characterize as a bio, psycho, social, spirito disease, which means that it affects, affects people on a psychological way, a biological way, a sociological way or an environmental way, and in a spiritual way. And all of us have those four dimensions in our lives. So any one of us can be predisposed to using those chemicals uh, in unhealthy ways. Some of us are more predisposed, for example, though, if we have a parent who had that addiction. My mother, my biological mother, passed away of an alcohol addiction, which makes me nine times more likely than the general population to struggle with that same disease. Now, had I known that, which I didn't at the time, early in my life, would that have changed my outlook? Well, it would have given me additional data. I can't promise that I could have gone and done something differently. But what I can say is that uh, it would have given me more information to make a, an appropriate decision. My guest today is David Bowl. He has written a fabulous book, Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth. It's his memoir. You can um, go to Amazon and get that book, and we'll talk a little bit later, but it's really uh, Father's Day is coming up, Mother's Day is coming up, and David's going to talk about that a little bit, be- little bit later in our show as to why these books are really great gifts for that. Or you can go to davidbohl.com, and with that, we'll be right back. 
Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. If you would like more information, if you would like to see some new pictures we have up on our website, you can go to ellenbecker.com. And it's actually a really nice way to get to know me and get to know other people in my company. One of the things that has always been really important, and I learned very early on in my life, that the way for me to connect, and David was talking about how important connections is, is I really like to connect face to face. I like to sit down and look in somebody's eyes, which is I'm looking at your great big beautiful blue eyes right now <laughs> and your smile. And and I really like that because connection is is so important. So I know that uh, sometimes it helps if before you come in, you just take a glance at a picture and you already have a kind of a, a warm little feeling about who you're going to be meeting. So my guest today is David Bull and he wrote a beautiful book, Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth. It's his memoir and earlier in the first segment, David, you talked about that you were adopted at uh, age seven and that you really took you a long time to understand um, how to deal with that. And, you know, it's it's really not a funny issue, but I remember that my um, younger sister, we used to always tell her she was adopted. <laughs> Just to get her mad. <laughs> Just to get her mad. And she go, I am not adopted. You know, and I think a lot of kids do those mean things. And I know you and I have had uh, talked about this um, a lot where you found out about it and thought that it was the greatest thing. You were unique. You were different. But that's not how it was received. That's true. That's true. And thank you for that lead. And I really love that you talked about connection just a moment ago because that ultimately is what my experience is as as an adopted individual it's probably not difficult for your listeners to understand that anytime a mammal and particularly a human mammal is separated from its mother there's going to be some sort of developmental interruption some people might even call it a trauma and th- that's easy to see as a matter of fact there are studies that that suggest that infants can discern their mother's milk from 10 different mothers in a room. So th- there is this immediate biological connection that exists when a child is born. And that's what, what my experience was about. At that point in my life, you said um, I ran into some kids. And, yes, I was adopted at seven days old. And when I was age six, I was I had been socialized in my family that adoption was a great thing. My, my parents were loving about it. They, they were, I can't remember a time that they, they didn't tell me that I was adopted or that they weren't proud of it. So it was a normal thing in our family. And when I was trying to share this, prideful thing that that uh, my parents had shared with me with some friends they reacted in a very very negative way and i like the anecdote about how you joked about your sister these friends didn't know what to make of it so they thought oh there there must be something wrong with this kid because his original mother gave him away and that stigma again we come back to stigma attached to me and that's the connection ultimately between addiction and adoption is that there's a stigma so that lack of connection um, that, that I felt, even though I was raised in a loving home by really loving people who, who tried to validate me and took good, great care of me, I never felt that that cellular connection that one might to a bi- biological parent. So that was my struggle, and even not only through my adolescent years, but into my adult years, trying to figure out how that was impacting my ability to look at life. So um, I had to deal with that stigma that I had myself fostered by thinking there was something wrong with that, right? Even though the world we live in today knows this to be a beautiful experience, that there are people who deserve to be uh, in stable homes, and we have wonderful systems set up for that, 
we still have to deal with that connected part. And if you remember from the last segment I talked about when I first drank alcohol, I felt instantly connected to people. We get to that connection point you made a minute ago. Right? If I'm using alcohol instead of trying to connect to human beings in a healthy way, it's pushing me further away from the connection with my family, with my loved ones, with schoolmates. And ultimately, that was my experience. I thought the world had this instruction manual on how to socialize and how to live their lives, and I was left without it. So I was, I wouldn't say lonely growing up, but I always felt isolated. I felt different than everyone else, and I felt less than than everybody else. And ultimately, doing this work that we've talked about is is finding a very safe environment in which to do this this work, finding a group of people who can validate your experiences, not not, not criticize experiences, but to validate them. Oh, my, I, I, I can understand how you might have felt that way when you were age six. I get it. Doesn't mean it's going to work for you today, but I get how that works. And ultimately, the answer to all of this is connection. How do we connect in healthy ways with other people who can help us see those perspectives that we talked about earlier, see the good in ourselves, see what we can contribute to society, see what we can do in business, not only to make money or to to earn a living to to keep ourselves in a a comfortable way uh, in lifestyle, but how can we give back to a community through our our business and philanthropic enterprises by making those connections with human beings. And ultimately, that's what I had to do. You know, David, you and I have talked a lot about feeling. And I believe at one point when we were talking, you had said, I had to learn to feel again. I had to learn to, I had to accept walking towards something that was really difficult. Mm. So, I'm curious what that felt like because I, I see it like walking towards, you know, I see it two ways. I see it like trying to walk through a building. <laughs> you can't get through it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this, you keep butting your head up against it. And you, you think that you're superhuman and you can walk through it and all of a sudden you decide you can't. I see it like walking through a fire. Mm. And I also see this feeling, and I don't know if it's accurate, but inside of yourself that it's just like a dark cloud or a mm-hmm. dark, mm-hmm. a darkness. Mm-hmm. Does that? I think, I think that's a good characterization. It, it is, yes. It was kind of like um, walking around, if you can imagine, with a visor on all the time where you could see what's in, in front of you and lower than your eyesight, but you couldn't see the sky. You couldn't see the sun. You couldn't see that there was a bigger world out there. And I think that's an excellent way of describing that. So in, in regards to your question specifically about... How do people start sensing emotions? How do they start feeling their true emotions and how do they talk about them? It's a great question. We live in a society where accomplishment is ordinarily prized very highly and very um, and is chronicled in, in media. So we look at success stories all the time, but they're not talking about their feelings. They're talking about what they did. Right? I, I got a job. I built this company. I did all these wonderful things. But we've never connected that to the emotions that went along with that because that's not what our American society is about. We're getting better at that, and I, I applaud you for allowing me on the show, and many of your guests in the past have talked about this very thing, but that's an issue. In addition, I and I don't want to sound sexist, but as a man, that's even more difficult. It's very more difficult in our society for a man to talk about his feelings because there aren't a lot of male audiences out there who are accustomed to that that conversation. And again, as you said earlier, it, it produces a, a, a high level of discomfort when people start talking about their emotions and they don't know how to process it. And finally... If, if one believes what the scientists have discovered about relinquished children, when something happens before a child has language for it, it makes it even more difficult to, to quantify emotions because they have no language to describe what there was happening to them, let alone what, was, what, was, what they were feeling at the time. So walking into that darkness is really key. And the short answer, Karen, is that it's about 
having a reasonable goal that one can achieve rather than thinking that things are too big. So instead of looking for closure, and I know a lot of there's a lot of discussion in our society about finding closure. Someone has a horrific accident, or we hear about shootings on the radio. We're all looking for closure, and I think that, that that's admirable that we should, but I think oftentimes we have to realize that it's not it, it's not doable. So when I when I look at what does it look like to walk into these emotions in these dark places, what I'm looking for is context. What is the environment in which in which my perceptions were formed, and how can I deconstruct those today to be more helpful? How can I find healthy functioning people to help me see those those new perspectives in my life, so I can walk through that darkness and look up instead of just staring down all the time? I liked your visual of a wearing a, a visor. I also look at it as if you're driving your car and particularly this time of the year where it gets so salty and the and and you keep trying to see through the windshield and how marvelous it is when you just put that little water on it <laughs> and all of a sudden you have this great big open view again of the world mm-hmm. and um but I know I know that it's tricky. I know that it's hard. I know that it takes support. It it takes trust. And David, finding that, I think, is really hard. Being able to find people around you that don't judge you and that love you for exactly who you are and want you to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And really, that it's hard, and mm-hmm. it's hard. It is difficult in in today's world, absolutely. Yeah, um, but I know those folks are out there. We work with them. We have the pleasure of meeting them. You have them on your show. Yes. You have them at your your organization. You have them in your family. We know those people are there for the asking. What, what I remind people is that trust is um, not only essential, but it's a long term goal. It takes a long time to build trust. So as you can imagine. By the time that I stopped drinking, I had created some animosity in relationships that I had. And the people um, in my life, I had to convince again that that I was worthy of their trust. So it takes a long time to build this trust. And again, it's about safety, it's about validation, and it's about connecting on any number of levels. To do that, again, to, to go back to your original question, we have to be able to talk about emotion. We have to be able to tell a cohesive narrative, a cohesive story about where we are today and why we want that connection. And that's how we can reach out to people. You know, David, it brings up a, a story that uh, this wonderful um, man told me when I was probably a sophomore in high school, and I was with his daughter, and we were talking about something that happened, and he said to me, you know, Karen, you know how you can tell your true friends. It was Karen and Isla, and he said, you know how you can tell your true friends. And we, of course, had our arms around each other, so we're true friends, you know. And he said, well, you can tell a true friend because when somebody is, um, when something happens to you that's very bad or difficult, everybody will come to your aid because not only does it help you, but it helps them. They feel Mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. They feel good because they're doing something. But a true friend will be there in the good times and the bad times. A true friend will be there to lift you up and to congratulate you for taking these steps that you've taken um, in conquering or understanding these addictions and moving forward. And I think you and I have both talked about that you have to be prepared that sometimes there's going to be people there that mm-hmm. aren't going to support you. Mm-hmm. but. 
I look at that as a real gift because now I really can discern who my true friends are. They're the ones that are there in the in the tough times, but they're also there in the good times because in the good times they've got to get beyond their own fears and their own wishing that it was them for whatever it is in order to be able to really support you and congratulate you. Mm-hmm. Well said. I love the way you, you phrase that. You know, in this reward-based society in which we lived, and it, it, it wouldn't take um, – much of an analogy other than looking at Facebook where people post things and they, they're looking for that instant recognition, right? We want to like something or we want people to like what we post on Facebook. That's not the way relationships are built. That is a reward-based system. And the friendships that you're talking about are based on unconditional love or unconditional positive regard. And that's where the safety comes from. I can look at an individual and I'll give you a more specific example. I have many individuals who, after having read my book, call me and they share with me their deepest, darkest secrets. Now, we're fast friends. We're not long and deep friends, but we become very fast friends. And I, so the first thing I tell them is, is, oh, my gosh, thank you for that. I am so honored that you trusted me with that darkness that you have not shared with another human being before. And that's where the safety comes from. That's where that validation comes from. And that's where that ultimate connection comes from. I am showing them unconditional positive regard. I value you as a human being. And I love the path that you've walked, whatever it may involve. Now let's talk about how together we can solve some of the problems. And, you know, David, so many of those paths that we walk are really the paths that we were destined to walk so that we could make a difference. Absolutely. I just had someone ask me that question. I was at a conference of the American Adoption Congress this, this last weekend, and I told my story to a group of individuals, and they, someone came up afterwards, and they, they said, I have one question for you. And I thought it was going to be highly technical, but she said, has this become your life's mission? And I said, absolutely. Of course it did. That's exactly what Now you know became. why. Now we know why. You've got the why. Exactly. And with that, we're going to take a break. My guest today is David Bowl. He has a wonderful book, Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth. It's his memoir. You can get it on Amazon. It is a great um, Mother's Day gift. And David, why don't you just take a second or two just to say why before we break? Sure. Well, this book is not only just a story, but it's also a what I would call a cohesive narrative. And I'll get to the quick of it. It. It's a generational treasure that we can pass down to our children, not the book and the story itself, but that ability to show that unconditional positive regard. Um, what we've learned through scientific studies is that if a parent can tell a cohesive narrative about themselves, their children are much more likely to be able to do that as well. And why is that important? Because if you can tell a, 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 that narrative, that is, if you can tell a story about yourself complete with emotions – then you are going to be much more emotionally secure than anybody else. You'll be more resilient. You'll be able to overcome challenges like nobody before. So giving this to a father, giving this to a mother as a gift is a way to start that generational um, legacy that can be uh, had through telling a story. The communication. Exactly. The acceptance. Yes. The love. With that, we'll take a break. Welcome to Money Sets. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. My guest today is David Bull. He has a wonderful book, Parallel Universes. We've been talking about um, a variety of different topics that all require or the question that needs to be asked is what does someone do if they're listening they say he's talking right to me what type of solutions are out there Um, how can you help people David or in what way well thank you Karen well currently right now I describe myself as an independent addiction consultant and I operate in a private practice named Beacon Confidential LLC and what I do is I work with individuals and families who are struggling oftentimes yes they're struggling with addictions or they're struggling 
with the question as to whether or not some alcohol or some other chemicals may be negatively impacting their lives, and oftentimes that's how we're, we're introduced. But what we also focus on are any type of developmental or communicative disruptions that might occur in a family or in one's life that prohibit them from getting everything that they we need. So we talked about a general malaise or a sadness or some other things. I, I, I'm not a therapist. I'm a consultant. So what I do is I bring resources together. So we will look at someone's uh, struggles in life. We'll try to quantify them as best we can. We'll try to attach emotions to them. And then we will figure out a goal and or a plan of attack as to how someone can overcome these obstacles. Oftentimes they may be very eclectic and they may be um, involving reading or uh, seeing professionals in the community or or even um, building some life skills. In the case of emerging adults, oftentimes there's a need to to build some some life skills so that individuals can walk through some of the tougher obstacles in life to get to that bigger reward at the end. So what I do is I, I work uh, either face-to-face or via telephone or Skype, and I work with individuals to quantify a plan of attack as to how to get their, their lives in order. And, of course, it wouldn't be extraordinary for me to refer them to a financial advisor or someone else in a professional capacity to help them figure out what their goals can be going forward. I'm easily accessible. I can be reached on the web at davidbbold.com, as you mentioned earlier. My email address is david at davidbbold.com. We can uh, talk, uh, again, in person via Skype on the telephone. I'm also active in social media, if that's something that that, um, you're interested in. So I blog. I write articles that are extensions of the work that I've done in my book and also might appear to more um, appeal to more specific audiences. So you can find me out on Facebook, you can find me on Twitter, I'm out on LinkedIn, and I can direct you if you reach out to me, and I'm happy to do this, of course, at no fee, to other resources, uh, not only in the community, but but uh, virtually on the web, where people can investigate what they need to do. What about businesses and corporations? What can they do? That's a great question, and I have worked with uh, many area businesses in the past, and I am recently. They can reach out to me, and we can look at ways that we can either uh, do one of two things. We can examine the issues that they think are uh, related to any chemical use or mental health issues within their firms, and we can devise ways to to help people through those issues, and or we can talk about resiliency. We can talk about giving people the tools that they need to overcome things in what seems to be an increasingly complex world. So I can design specific workshops and seminars and sessions, and I can come into local businesses if they so choose and talk to groups of people about working through through any obstacles. I can also do that one-on-one. So to reach you, they go to David at David at davidbbowl.com. Or that's the easiest way to reach you. The book um, is Parallel Universes, The Story of Rebirth and Memoir is on Amazon.com if they would like that. And are you, um, what does the future look like, David? You've got this all started and I know it's a a really fresh beginning for you. What do you see as the future of this whole? Thank you for asking. You know, I I wrote this book not because I wanted to be an author. Uh, I don't consider myself to be author despite the fact that I wrote a book. I wanted to tell a story that opened up a discussion. And ultimately, the, the answer is where I see this going is to broaden this discussion, to take this into other factions. And I am um, highly involved in some factions in, in the community trying to solve some of these these problems with addiction, with the opiate crisis, with regard to recovery supports and, and lack of funding for that. But I'm also involved in talking to people in the foster system and the adoptee world looking at ways that we can offer a trauma-informed approach to do that. And we were in a wonderful state to do that. We have uh, a wonderful um, 
initiative of trauma-informed care that's coming from the governor's wife's office. We have organizations like CNA and others in the community who are doing excellent trauma-informed work, and, and that's where this leads. So what, what this does is hopefully it, it allows me to be a storyteller. I continue to tell my story at bookstores, at libraries, in public ways, in interviews, and hoping that we bring more people into the discussion, and, we, and the more people that we have, the more solutions we so can offer So I would guess problem. that for things like Lions Club and different organizations out there that you're a ready speaker Absolutely. to tell your story, and um, there's so many things around Milwaukee looking for speakers that, that would be great, and you're obviously just a wonderful speaker. Speaker. And one of the things, David, that I want to say that is really, I think, unique and different about your book and the story that you're telling that goes with it is you're telling it in a way that people can hear it. Mm-hmm. You are so human and your your humanness comes out in such a beautiful way. And it is the stories, but it's also your desire and your wish to make a difference that the story is so much a part of you that that's why people can hear it. And I think when people can hear a story is when they can take action to make a difference. Thank you. Well, that, that's brilliant. And going back briefly to what we talked about with regard to the stigma earlier, one surefire way of reducing stigma is being authentic and vulnerable in a public way and sharing that with other people. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. You're welcome, David, and thank you for being here. I want to mention that if this is an interview that you would like to share with someone or pass on, you can go um, early next week, I believe it will be. Next week, it'll be on our website at ellenbecker.com, and you can listen to it again and forward it on to someone you love and someone that you think would benefit. Also, just to remind you that on Saturday, May 12th from 9 to 12 in the town bank building parking lot in Pewaukee, our office. We have our community recycling and shredding day. So you can bring um, electronic recycling um, things, flat panel, LCD screens, televisions, computer monitors will be charged $10. Console tube televisions will not be accepted. Um, but uh, we're also looking for eyeglasses, hearing aid donations to help support the Lions Club, and um, up to three boxes of any type of of shredding, and I know you can sneak a few more in there, uh, but please join us again Saturday, May 12, 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And with that, I, um, I just want to say again, David, thank you. And as always, I hope that I've made a difference in your personal and your financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. You have a great weekend. Bye.